0: The Omicron variant has swept across the country. Emergency rooms are stretched to
1: their limits. We are again seeing many of our own get ill and have to be out of work. This one is really like a tsunami.
0: Right now it just feels like we're waiting to see how bad it's really going to be. Welcome, I'm Mary O'Dowd. As time passes and the COVID-19 pandemic evolves, so do the pressures on our healthcare system and its people. Today, we're joined by someone who has been on the front line since the beginning to discuss the recent surge, new treatments, new health concerns, and what might be some light at the end of the tunnel. Lewis Nelson is a practicing physician and chair of the Emergency Medicine Department at University Hospital in Newark, and a professor for New Jersey Medical School. Hi, Lewis.
1: Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your role and how you and your team of clinicians are holding up?
1: Sure. I mean, as you've mentioned, I'm chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the medical school, but but much more apropos to today's discussion, I'm chief of service, uh, basically the doctor in charge of the emergency department at University Hospital in Newark. And, uh, you know, it has been a challenge. And I think everybody that's lived through this, uh, whether they're in medicine or not, recognizes that we're dealing with unprecedented times. Uh, the, uh I tell you, not a day goes by that I don't feel inspired by the people that I work with, uh, everybody that's there, the physicians, the nurses, the support staff, every single person that shows up to work and wears a smile and does their best to take care of the patients who are coming into the emergency department and into the hospital and all of our uh, you know, uh, uh, facilities in order to provide care to the patients that we uh, are supposed to manage. And and it is just, it is an amazing experience to watch. And y- you recognize, of course, that many people have left the healthcare field, but those that remain, they are truly wonderful.
0: You know, you talk a little bit about how many people have left and I have um, doctors and nurses in my family and I see the strain um, that these past two years have had on them. And, and you've been through the entire period Um, at University Hospital, so much of what people are worried about right now are the concerns, not as much of the concerns in the community affected by the pandemic, but on our hospitals. And, you know, talking about our hospitals in particular as being that critical battlefield um, and the healthcare workers staffing at the hospitals is even a bigger concern than the number of patients coming through the doors because so many people have either been sort of forced out because of the impact of the pandemic on their family or burnout. Um, you know, what insights do you have on how to address for those who remain um, and continue to, the battle how do we work to try to address those levels of stress in our healthcare providers? Not just the clinicians, but as you mentioned, all the staff that make sure that the facility is ready to to support the workers and the patients.
1: Yeah, I, this is something that we face on a on a daily basis, and there's probably no single answer that would that would address all of the issues. Uh, there's there's no question that many people have left. Uh, the workspace altogether. I mean, the so-called great resignation. Uh, Healthcare has been probably affected more than most others, if not the most of all of of the different workforces that we see, and certainly probably the most critical of the ones that we routinely think about. Uh, When you talk to people about what their stressors are, some of them are about personal safety. I don't think we'll ever really be able to address those folks adequately. I mean, it's just inherently unsafe to be put in a position where you're dealing with patients who come in sick. You know, and most patients who came in sick before didn't really give you, uh, or didn't carry a high risk of giving you disease. Whereas now, I, you know, it's just, it's an impossible task to not be to, to protect yourself completely to the degree that most people would feel satisfied. So those that remain are willing to absorb that risk and feel comfortable doing so. In no place is that more obvious than in the emergency department. Uh, everybody in the hospital and i would take this uh, away from nobody everybody faces great challenges every day dealing with that risk but but the ed just because of the way we work and in the tight confined space with with unlimited inflow and very limited outflow of patients we just We just expand you know limitless well
0: Um, you never know what's going to come through the door in the emergency department right absolutely
1: yeah and you you know again not to take anything away from anybody else but there's a limit to how many people you could put on any given unit in the hospital but the ed just seems to have an unlimited capacity to care for people when we do we take care of anybody that's sick that walks in what it means is for people that aren't sick they might wait for a while and that's something we're apologetic for but hopefully everybody understands But but again, the the stress issues about safety are are very difficult to to um, overcome. I mean, we provide personal protective equipment, we provide as much protection as we can. But it's just given the the work place that we're in, it's it's hard to 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 really accommodate. Uh, But for many of them, it's things like money. Uh, You know, you can't get by that. I mean, uh, everybody's got a price. If if you if you would for for. You know, healthcare providers are really no different. And uh, we see that many of the many of the uh, shortages are responsive to money. Uh, this is one of the problems we've seen with nursing. and I, I use the word problem perhaps in quotes, but many nurses have left staff positions to go and take agency work. And you know in agency work, I don't have details of specifics, but they make two times plus the money that they would make if they stayed on as a staff position, they lose certain benefits and there's other you know good and bad about doing that, but certainly money talks. Uh, you know there are there are wellness issues about family concerns and taking care of children that are out of school and or you know other family members who who are sick. And these are things that society is going to have to come up with ways to address. you know even even putting people, children into into preschool or or care centers or older people into facilities carries, in and of themselves, their own stressors, whether it's safety risks or financial risks, these are just tough things to solve. But I think the one thing that we're doing that's not going to solve the problem is we're going to give people a little bit of financial incentives to the job. And I think that that will have a measurable impact, although it won't solve the problem.
0: So Lewis, tell me, you know I have lots of hospital workers or, or nurses and doctors in my family. And one of the things that I try to do is just send them care packages, even the school nurse saying thank you. Um, I feel like it's, it's really straining and, and I don't know how much it helps, but I try to do those little things just to show gratitude because it's such a hard time. Do you feel like that's the kind of thing that people in the community or, um, you know, neighbors can do for the healthcare workers that they know?
1: I think that everybody really appreciates being appreciated. So I think that anything you can do to show that sort of appreciation for people is worthwhile. Uh, some of us feel more that this is our role and responsibility and others feel uh, that um, we we like to get that sort of validation. Uh, so it's really hard to say that it's going to work in every situation and some people may or may not appreciate it, but I certainly don't think it's going to really hurt. To show that sort of appreciation. They're historically, early on in the pandemic, there was a little bit of guilt associated with the, the outpouring of emotional support that people were having, but I think as it's gone on for two years now, I think we've, we've rightly understood that that just like we appreciate others who are doing their jobs, whether it's stocking grocery shelves or you know driving buses and taxis, I think getting appreciation is still a nice thing.
0: So we should all keep trying to do that and say thank you and, and be kind to one another. So talk to me a little bit about this most recent surge in cases. The Omicron variant has been different from the prior waves and a variety of different ways. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of either the severity or how it's affecting different parts of our population?
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely different. There is no question about that. One of the questions is why it's different. Uh, and, you know, obviously the virus might've changed. Uh, it might be that we have a different baseline level of, of immunity in the population, that so-called approaching herd immunity that we, we've sometimes talked about early on uh, or the flattening of the curve. Um, regardless, uh, compared to what it was like in March and April of the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, uh, where literally in the emergency department, every patient coming in was at death's door. I mean, we would we weren't you know, our volumes in the ED dropped by fifty percent, but what what came in in that in place of those patients were very sick people, and it was it was quite grueling. and there was a lot unknown about the virus and everybody was on edge and everybody was concerned about their health and their family's health. Um, we We now see a disease. Uh, where there are a lot of people who are minimally ill and there's a number of people who are moderately ill, but the very sick patients that we used to see that represented 80% of the patients we saw now represents 10% of the patients we see. So we see a lot of patients with COVID and you can see by the testing numbers that the the number of people that have COVID positive tests is very high. The number of people coming to the hospitals and the number of people who are very sick are are much reduced compared to what it was like earlier on.
0: And in terms of how this is affecting different parts of our population, has that changed as well? Early on, we saw incredible disparities relative to race and age and, and individuals with underlying conditions. Is that all the same or is it different in this way? Because when you look at the data, it sort of piles it all together. So it's hard to see how it might be different
1: now. Well, again, my population tends to be an African-American population primarily, uh, and we definitely see uh, within the strata of the African American excuse me of the strata of the African American population, we see older patients, patients with more underlying medical comorbidities, suffering more. Uh, particularly, people with underlying lung disease, dr- you know, diseases like diabetes. But you know, we are seeing more younger and healthier people who are coming in minimally affected. Right, these people might not have sought care in the past because there were so many other people seeking care. Or it's again, it's a slightly different disease perhaps than it was in the past. What we are seeing for sure is more children who are being affected. In the first waves, to, you know, despite children being exposed the same way they are exposed now, presumably, uh, we had very few children that came into the hospital and the number of children admitted was very small. And it, it probably one of the fastest rising groups of patients in hospitals is children. And if you look at the CC data, it does support that. But having underlying medical illnesses is still a big risk for getting sick. There's no question, regardless of your race and where you live in the country.
0: How do you think um, being vaccinated has either mitigated the problem or uh, affected, you know, who's coming in? Because you know, we know a lot fewer children are vaccinated than adults.
1: Absolutely. Well, there, so there's no question that vaccination is probably the most critical thing that we've done to address the pandemic. Uh, it's probably what's changed the complexion of the pandemic. It's, it, it, you know, we talk about herd immunity and herd immunity can be reached either through getting sick and, and developing an immune response to that or getting vaccinated. So this, this, this uh, underlying immunity or at least relative immunity to getting uh, COVID has clearly changed the risk, the you know, the rate of illness and the risk of, of being hospitalized and dying. But children have always been, un, un, you know, unvaccinated. The little children have always been unvaccinated, and they still are. Um, so earlier on in the previous parts of the pandemic, we still didn't see a lot of little kids coming in. So what we do know is that the virus has changed. I mean, we know just by the names of them that the original, the wild type so-called virus versus the Delta variant versus the Omicron variant, they're all different. And, and it's, you know, historically, you know, I'm not a virologist, but I've obviously read and studied a bunch of this, like many others interested in this have, uh, that if you look back at the pandemic in 1918 of the flu, that H1N1 strain is the same H1N1 strain that we have now in the, when, we get, when we get the flu periodically, um, yet it's a much more benign disease. And that sort of makes sense in a Darwinian evolutionary sort of perspective where you, you, if you were a virus, you wouldn't want to just kill everybody that you infected because you'd never be able to reproduce. So, <laughs> so, so the successful viruses are the ones that get you sick and allow you to be transmitted to other people to propagate yourself. So it does make some sense. So it's evolving. It is evolving. To survive better. So the fact that we say that this virus is more contagious and transmissible and less virulent and less likely to cause severe disease makes sense. In addition to the fact that many people with underlying disease have been immunized or vaccinated, so they're less likely to get sick. So that's why what we're seeing is a lot of low level illness, Because viruses, I'm sorry, vaccines are not perfect, but what they do is they mitigate the illness. They don't necessarily prevent it completely, but you can still get a runny nose or a sore throat, but you're not gonna be hospitalized. You're not gonna die, which is why they're so important. Little kids though, it might be that the virus has changed and little kids, children just have more susceptibility to this new version of the virus. For whatever reason, whatever change to the spike protein occurred as the variants evolved, children are more susceptible to them.
0: So we'll have to keep watching and see, learning from the data on that. Absolutely. Another thing that really is different between the beginning of this pandemic and where we are today is the rapidly developing improvements in terms of treatment and learning how to treat and also having, you know, sort of pharmacy and pharmaceutical interventions and tools for treatment. Can you talk a little bit about if someone tests positive for covid What kind of options they have available to them now, either, um, you know, if they called their doctor or came to the hospital in terms of treatment?
1: So early on, the first treatment that we had available were, were exogenous antibodies, were antibodies that we would give you when you didn't have the ability to make your own antibodies. And early on, we took plasma from people who had been infected and we gave it to other people. Plasma contains the antibodies that that person generated against the virus on their own. Uh, that's now evolved. So we package those antibodies from artificial sources, from you know, from from test tubes. Essentially, uh, they're called monoclonal antibodies, um, but they're effective against these viruses. And we will infuse them into people uh, when they're at risk of illness after being exposed to uh, COVID. Uh, they're not really given. Uh, until very, very recently with a brand new preparation, but they're not really given prophylactically to prevent you from getting sick. They are given to people who are infected and have a risk of progressing to severe disease. They work okay, they're not great. They're certainly not as good as protecting yourself from getting sick in the first place, such as by getting vaccinated, but they do provide a certain degree of protection against progression to severe disease. There are some newer drugs that have come out, uh, some that are in, intravenously infused in the hospital and some brand new ones that are given orally that interfere with viral replication. So when you get sick, it, it prevents the virus from overwhelming your body and your immune system. Uh, but again, you're sick and you're getting treatment. So it's, there's almost no situation where getting a treatment is as good as preventing the disease. So again- Well, there's
0: never a situation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> where you want to get look- sick
0: and get treatment, you always <laughs> want to not get sick in the first place. But so you said there's a pill too, the oral um, medication. What kind? What kind of um, medicine is that?
1: Well, there were two different pills. Um, one of them uh, is able to interfere with the way that the virus replicates its RNA, right? And we have an IV medication that does the same thing. So you know, just like we have DNA, this virus has RNA. Uh, and it interferes with the ability of that um, strand of RNA to sort of grow and expand. It's an analog of one of the bases that's in that RNA. Uh, and it, and as that RNA is created, it uh, self-terminates or it, it degrades and it's unable to create functional viruses. The other one.
0: Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: The other one interferes with viral replication in a different manner, not through through base pairing, but through what's called inhibiting an enzyme that's a protease that prevents the virus from replicating.
0: So if I'm sick, do I need to go to the hospital to get these pills or infusions? Or is this something that I could call my doctor's office after I had a positive test and they would tell me what to do?
1: Well, the originally up until about, I don't know, probably un, under a month ago, uh, you had to go to the hospital and get it infused or into a, into an office setting to get it infused because the medication, which is called Randezivir, is only available intravenously. There are two new medications, uh, one's called Paxlovid, which is the brand name. Um, and, uh, it, uh, is, um, it's, available orally, and the other is malnupinavir, which is another oral agent, which are both available by in pill form. The Paxlovid seems to be the better of the two, and it's it's a protease inhibitor, it's the second of the medications I was referring to, and that's available by prescription. It is brand new, it is not yet widely available, but over time, obviously, it will become more available, and it does have fairly good performance on reducing risk of hospitalization and death better than the other medication that I, that I mentioned that's available orally. Uh, so we're going to see how this progresses again over time and what it looks like once it's rolled out, but the, but the pre-release data does look fairly promising, but again, it's not as good as preventing yourself from getting sick, but it's better than getting hospitalized and dying for sure. Okay. Okay.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what else you're seeing in the emergency department because, as we said, you get everything there. Um, you know, beyond COVID and patients that are sick with flu um, like illness, what are the other types of maybe pandemic related but, um, you know, other challenges that are walking through the doors of the emergency department these days that are unusually high?
1: Well, before I answer that, which I will, I will say that the biggest problem we probably face is that people who aren't suffering from covid have reduced ability to access healthcare. So, you know, we are unable to take care of people who are sick with other diseases not at all related to covid just because their capacity is reduced, our hospitals are full, our emergency departments are overwhelmed, EMS systems can't function well. So, so we are impacting people that don't even have covid. But but you know, the covid pandemic has really been particularly harmful on certain marginalized population, particularly those who have underlying mental health disorders, behavioral health disorders. You know, it's hard enough for those of us who are you know, well-connected and, and uh, you know, have family support and social support to navigate some of the challenges that we see with COVID. But if you have an underlying mental health disorder, it becomes extraordinarily difficult. Uh, you know, Resources are limited. Many of the relationships they have with providers, psychiatrists and psychologists and others have been broken up because they can't see them anymore. they're, they're you know fortunately telehealth is available, but telehealth's not in person. Many of the group efforts that we used to have, particularly for people with substance use disorders, uh, sort of don't work as well in a, in a telehealth sort of manner. Um, so, so these things have really been troubling for these populations of patients. Uh, you know we've seen an increase in the incidence of interpersonal violence and domestic, Violence, probably due to the stress of being kind of cooped up together, you know, along with the socioeconomic, you know, problems associated with inflation and, you know, all of the things that we deal with on a regular basis, you know, the lack of of resource availability. Um, And it's been a big challenge. So, particularly in a population like we see at University Hospital, it tends to be a little bit more, you know, on the um, socioeconomically deprived scale. Uh, there, there's a lot of suffering that's going on.
0: With that in mind, where we are today, two years in, what gives you hope? What makes you feel like we might be seeing the light at the end of this tunnel? It might be a different world when we get out of it, but you know, what gives you some sense of optimism in terms of where we're headed?
1: Well, I, you know, what I commented about before, I think the evolution of the virus and seeing what's happening in other parts of the world that have been plagued with the Omicron variant before us, like South Africa and, and Europe. Uh, I, I think that the, 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 the trend in, in diseases, deaths, hospitalizations has been very promising. I mean, they've peaked and flattened and are coming down in many parts of the world. And in fact, here in, the, in Northern New Jersey, and the New York metropolitan area, we've sort of hit what we believe now for several days is a plateau. I mean, I, I hate to jinx us, you know, you never know, but it does look like we sort of flattened a little bit and we're gonna to start to go down hopefully. So I do have hope that this will go, go away, at least, at least this, this surge will go away. We may be living with this disease forever, or at least for the f- foreseeable future. It will become an endemic disease, and we have many of them. I mean, nobody really thinks about the flu or the common cold. These diseases were at one point novel and they've just become routine. And, you know, those of us that get flu shots understand that the flu is a risky disease, and we still have 20 to 40,000 deaths a year in the United States alone from the flu. Uh, We seem to sort of accept- But we learn
0: how to live with it.
1: Correct. Now, clearly, 800,000 deaths in two years from COVID is not the same as 20,000 from the flu. But as those numbers become more normalized. And as we, we develop this approach to herd immunity or improve vaccination strategies and other things with with COVID, we will it will become an endemic disease. When, when that happens, it's going to be up to the CDC and other authorities. Public health authorities determine these things, but it's going to go from being a pandemic to an endemic. And and we will just learn to live with it. And I think we're doing that now. I mean, we've really changed our approach to how we take, you know, go to the go to game, you know sporting events, how we send our children to school, how we go on vacation. We will this will become something that we're able to to um, to to live with to 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 kind of it'll become compatible and ingrained in our existence. And I don't think we'll be wearing masks forever. We might might very well be getting vaccines on a periodic basis forever, or at least again, when I say forever, I mean in the foreseeable future, Uh, that wouldn't really surprise me, but we do with flu and we just get used to it. And I don't think that's gonna be a big problem, but I do think life will return to normal.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, um, Dr. Nelson. And thank you for joining us for this episode of On the Pandemic. This is Mary O'Dowd, Executive Director of Health Systems and Population Health Integration for Rutgers University. For more information on how Rutgers is meeting the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit coronavirus.rutgers.edu.